And today, we are going to talk about Babel. And uh, before we do, I kind of need to set the stage. We have already talked about the flood in Genesis uh, 6, 7, 8, and 9. It's a big section of Genesis. So God floods the world, saves Noah and his family. And in Genesis 9, last week we looked at the Noetic Covenant, um, where God promises he's never going to flood the world again. Um, then chapter 10 is a long genealogy. Chapter 11, there's nine verses dealing with Babel. That's what we're going to look at today. Then the rest of chapter 11 is some more genealogy. Now, I'm not going to read through the genealogy, but I do have uh, the genealogy. I found a chart online. And uh, basically, to get the setting, you just simply need to know this. Here's Noah at the top of the food chain, and he has three sons, Japheth, Ham, and Shem. Now, remember, he blesses Shem, and he curses not Ham, but Ham's son, Canaan. And his son, Canaan, is where we get the Canaanites from, and they're the ones who inhabit, really, the land of Israel. Now, Noah blesses Shem, and through Shem's line, there's a fellow by the name of Abraham, and uh, that sets us up for the fact that Abraham is going to go into the land of Canaan. God is going to promise him the land of Canaan, but then he goes into Egypt, and they're down there for 400 years, and then the Israelites come back, and they're going to take over Uh, the land of Canaan. So the blessing of Shem over Canaan uh, goes all the way back to the family of Noah. All right, so that's kind of the setting. Now, um, to make sense of... Am I spitting here? All right. Uh, To make sense of the Tower of Babel story, you kind of need to know where it is in this whole thing. Because if you think... Uh, If you read the genealogy and you think it's just chronological, it just is at the end of the genealogy, it won't make any sense. Um, Where does Babel take place? Well, we don't know exactly, but here's a good guess. Genesis 10.25, this is part of the genealogy, and it says to Eber, so here's Eber, were born two sons. The name of one was Peleg, For in his days the earth was divided, and his brother's name was Joktan. So here's Eber, here's Joktan, here's Peleg. In those days the earth was divided. Now some people take that to mean, you know, there was Pangea. The whole world, the the land mass was together, and then there was continental drift, and now we have North America, South America, Africa, da-da-da-da. Okay? Boy, I don't know that uh, the whole world shifted like that during one guy's lifetime. If if there was tectonic movement, it probably took place during the flood. But most people interpret this not to be talking about the landmass, the earth dividing, but the nations dividing. In other words, up until the time of Peleg, everybody hung together and then the Tower of Babel takes place right around this time, and that's when the earth, the nations, divide. And that's exactly what we see here in Genesis 11. Now the whole earth had one language and the same 
words. I guess the Hebrew says they were of one lip. So they all spoke the same language, and they were together. And as people migrated from the east, they found a plain in the land of Shinar and settled there. Where's that? Iraq. So they all migrate uh, east, settle in Iraq. And they said to one another, Come, let us make bricks and burn them thoroughly. And they had brick for stone and bitumen for mortar, tar. So so prior to this, they would have built out of wood and find stones, but now they're smart. They go, we we don't have stones out here in the desert. We have lots of sand, though, and we can can burn the sand and make bricks, and this oil... Someday the oil is going to be valuable, but right now let's use it for for mortar. And they build buildings. Then they said, come, let us build ourselves a city and a tower with its top in the heavens. And let us make a name for ourselves, lest we be dispersed over the face of the whole earth. And the Lord came down. Now this is funny. We're going to build a tower to heaven. And uh, God says, what are they doing down there? So he has to come down. And the Lord came down to see the city and the tower which the children of man had built. And the Lord said, Behold, they're one people, and they have all one language. And this is only the beginning of what they will do. And nothing that they propose to do will now be impossible for them. Come, let us go down and therefore confuse their language so that they may not understand one another's speech. So the Lord dispersed them from there over the face of all the earth, and they left off building the city. Therefore, its name was called Babel, because there the Lord confused the language of all the earth. And from there the Lord dispersed them over the face of all the earth. Now, if ever there has been a passage that has produced a bunch of different interpretations, it's this one. Now, the key, I believe, to understanding the passage is asking the question, what was the sin of Babel? Obviously, God um, wants to disperse them over the face of the earth. They must be doing something wrong. What did they do wrong? Now, let me give you some, some different things that have been proposed. Some people think the sin was idolatry. Why? Well, because they're building a tower. Now, archaeologists have found a number of towers in that region of the world. In fact, Abraham is from Ur, and they have found uh, what they call a ziggurat. Not a cigarette, a ziggurat. A ziggurat. And it's kind of a pyramid-shaped thing, but a thing with, with different layers. Uh, a huge project. And they believe... Many people believe that the tower that was being built in Babel was a ziggurat. Now, um, what the, the tie into idolatry is this. On the top of many of these towers was a pagan temple, a temple to a foreign god. So, uh, put it all together, uh, many people believe that the sin was idolatry. They build this tower to a pagan god. Now, I had a professor in seminary, his name is John Salehammer, he's considered to be one of the, the best Old Testament scholars alive, 
And uh, Dr. Salehammer had a reputation for being very cautious about getting too excited about archaeology, biblical archaeology. Why? Because many times when there's a new discovery over in Israel or somewhere, um, people get all excited and they start to ignore the text in front of them and they want to make it the story all about the archaeological find. Okay? Now, he would say that that's going on here uh, with this ziggurat idea. While virtually every ziggurat had a temple to a foreign god and there was idolatry going on, there's nothing in the text about idolatry. If idolatry and, and building a temple to a foreign god was really the problem, wouldn't there be something in the text that says that? So while that's a good guess that the sin was idolatry, um, I'm not so sure that that's right on target. Now, other people say the sin in Babel was that they were all together building a one-world order, that they were all under one government. And of course, then whoever teaches this quickly goes to the end times where there will be a one-world leader and a one-world government, probably the UN involved in this, and the Antichrist will take over the world through the UN, and God is showing his disapproval for the UN by scattering uh, the first attempt at building a United Nations. Okay? Now, I'm no big fan of the UN. Okay? I won't get into that. Okay? Um, I don't think that's what's going on here. There's no emphasis here on government. Right? I, think, I think the solution's a lot simpler uh, than, than reading the UN into this. Okay? Now, um, other people say, well, God's anti-city. They wanted to hang together in a city, and God's not for city. City is where crime is. City is where, uh, where sin is. So he didn't want them to be in a city, so God is anti-city and he scattered them. Well, if God is anti-city, why are we going to spend eternity in the new Jerusalem? If he was pro-farmland, it would be the new Elburn. Right? Other people say, well, this is anti-technology. They used their brains, and they didn't have rocks, so they made rocks. They made bricks. And, in fact, if you go back uh, to verse 6, Behold, they're one people, and they have one language, and this is only the beginning of what they will do, and nothing that they propose to do will now be impossible for them. So they're smart, and they're using their brains, and we better stop this, this development uh, of technology. So God is anti-technology. Well, the Bible is not anti-technology. In fact, part of the command in Genesis uh, to, to mankind is have dominion over the earth. You are to tap its resources, right? You're to master it and use it. Jesus was a carpenter. He used tools to craft the earth's resources, So this is not necessarily anti-technology. So what is really going on here? 
Well, I think the answer is very simple, and it's found in the context of Genesis and in the Bible, in the immediate context of Genesis and in the Bible in its bigger picture, especially when we look up the word Babylon throughout the Bible. Okay? Let's go back to the garden. What was the first sin? It was eating the fruit. But behind eating the fruit was arrogance, human arrogance. God said, I give you this paradise. You can have all the fruit. Just don't eat this from this one tree. And Eve, seeing that the fruit was good for making her wise and it looked good and it's going to taste good, she decided what was good. God said, that's not good. She says, I know better than you. This is good. The first sin was motivated in part by arrogance. The sin of Babel is also arrogance toward God. Mankind thinking they know what is good, what is best for humanity, even though God told them something different. In Genesis 1, God declares the creation good Seven times after he creates something, he sees that it's good. He declares that it's good. In Genesis 1, the word Eretz, which is translated earth or land, the word Eretz appears 15 times. Put it together, the earth is God's good gift to man. This is good. Here, I'm going to build a home for you. This is good. Now, after the flood, God commissions Noah, and he says this, God blessed, he blessed Noah and his sons and said to them, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth, the Eretz. My blessing to you is you're going to multiply, and I'm giving you the earth. Now conquer it. Go fill it. Don't just hang out together. So what do we read in Babel? Verse 4, they said, come, let us build ourselves a city and a tower. What's the the uh, significance of a tower? Every city had a tower. That's it. Don't read too much into it. With its top in the heavens, and let us make a name for ourselves. That's important later on. We will uh, make a name for ourselves. Not God will make a name for us, but we're going to take things into our own hands. Lest we be dispersed over the face of the whole earth. God's command, fill the earth. No, let's build a city and hang together. It's just simple arrogance. God says, I'm giving you this good earth, fill it. No, we know better. We're going to huddle together. So what does God do? He says, all right, boom. All their language is changed. So they can't communicate. So people who share the same language, they better go off and disperse themselves over the earth to enjoy God's good gift. Kind of throws a loop in those who study languages is they think language developed over you know millions of years of cavemen grunting and blah 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 blah. 
if this is true, and it's true, language changed like that. God reprogrammed the brains so their language changed. It was a miraculous change. Okay? So, bottom line, what's the story of Babel? Babel is the story of man's arrogance toward God and God's ability to thwart it like that. That's the, that's the message of Babel. We think we know better than God, and we don't. And be careful when arrogant man comes up against the omniscient, all-powerful, all-knowing God, he can humble man like that. The first sin in the garden. We know better about what's good. The sin of Babel. We know better about hanging together. The sin of David. Yeah, I know I have a wife. I have several wives. Right? And I know, God, you've said don't commit adultery, but I know what's really good, Bathsheba. She's good. It's, it's arrogance. Right? It's God saying, I've created one man and one woman, put them together. I've told you in Scripture that it's the marriage is to be one man and one woman. I've illustrated it in nature through the plumbing argument. Right? We know better. We're arrogant. We're going to redefine marriage. John 14, 6, Jesus says, I'm the way, the truth, and the life. No man comes to the Father except through me. There's only one way. Why? Because God is perfectly holy. Man is sinful. You need to be perfect. How can we be perfect? Well, a perfect sacrifice has to pay for your sins and a perfect life has to be imputed to you. There's no other religion that gives you perfection. Christianity is the only way. Jesus said he's the only way. But man says, we know better. We like this religion. It's more to my taste. Or that religion. It's more to my taste. Okay. So, um, man's arrogance... God's power to humble that arrogance. Now, what's interesting is if you, would, if you do a study of Babylon, throughout Scripture, the same theme of man's arrogance and God's power to thwart it is found in a number of places, all dealing with Babylon. I want to share three of them with you. All right? Three Babylonian lessons. So, and you guys are probably going to study this. First, we have King Nebuchadnezzar. Nebuchadnezzar was the powerful king of Babylon. He's the one who had the troops go into uh, Israel, into uh, Jerusalem, and demolish Jerusalem and steal all the, uh, the articles from the temple and bring it back to Babylon. And he brought captives back to Babylon. That's where we get Daniel and Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. Okay? Now, um, he did build an awesome empire. And he knew it. And we read in Daniel 4 of him admiring himself for this awesome empire that he has built. He says, it says he was walking on the roof of the royal palace of Babylon, and the king answered and said, is this great? Is this not great Babylon, which now notice the the uh, the pronouns which I have built by my mighty power as a royal residence 
for the glory of my majesty. Who do you think he thinks built Babylon? Right? He is very impressed with himself. While the words were still on the king's mouth, there fell a voice from heaven. O King Nebuchadnezzar, to you it is spoken, the kingdom has departed from you, and you shall be driven from among men. And your dwelling shall be with the beasts of the field, and you shall be made to eat grass like an ox. And seven periods of time shall pass over you until you know that the Most High rules the kingdom of men and gives it to whom he will." Immediately the word was fulfilled against Nebuchadnezzar. He was driven from among men and ate grass like an ox. And his body was wet with the dew of heaven till his hair grew as long as eagle's feathers and his nails were like bird's claws. God turned him into a cow for seven years. Now you say, come on. This is just another example of the Bible being full of myths and, and fairy tales. This can't happen. Well, there is actually a disease called lycanthropy. It comes from the uh, two Greek words, leukos, which means wolf, and anthropos, which means man. It's wolf-man disease, where a person imagines himself to be a wolf, or some other animal and actually crawls around on all fours thinking that he's turned into this animal. It's where we get the legend of the wolf man. King George III of England and Otto of Bavaria actually suffered from this disease. They thought they were animals. Um, Here's a painting by a guy named William Blake from the 17th or 18th century. Um, that's, it's called Nebuchadnezzar. He thought he was an animal. Right? So he is, at one point, walking around, the most powerful man in the world with the largest building project that has ever taken place. He's admiring how wonderful he is. Boom. God humbles him like that. Now, at the end of this time, this is at the end of the days, I, Nebuchadnezzar, lifted my eyes to heaven and my reason returned to me and I blessed the Most High and praised and honored him who lives forever for his dominion. Now, notice the pronouns. For his dominion is an everlasting dominion and his kingdom endures from generation to generation. All the inhabitants of the earth are accounted as nothing and he does according to his will among the hosts of heaven and among the inhabitants of the earth. And none can say, uh, stay his hand or say to him, what have you done? You know, one way to tell whether you have been humbled by God or not is your pronouns. You talk about yourself a lot? Do you think about yourself a lot? Is it all about you, what you've done, what you're accomplishing? Or do you speak of him a lot? Now I, Nebuchadnezzar, praise and extol and honor the king of heaven, for all his works are right and his ways are just, and those who walk in pride he is able to humble. Those who walk in pride. Maybe some of you are proud about your business accomplishments, your money, your good looks. Whatever accomplishments 
be careful. If you are not grateful to God for everything you are and everything you have and you think it's all about what you've accomplished, keep Nebuchadnezzar in mind. Now, let me take you to his grandson, Belshazzar. Um, By the time Belshazzar is king, Babylon is an awesome, awesome city. He built a brick wall around the entire city of Babylon. The brick wall was 56 miles long, 300 feet high. It was a football field high, 25 feet thick. So four chariots could run side by side, pulled by horses around the entire 56 miles uh, of, of brick wall around Babylon. There was another wall, a double wall, 75 feet in front of the first wall. So you know when you drive by a prison and you see there's the wire fence with the, uh, with the barbed wire on top, and then there's a second fence because, man, if you're going to escape, you've got to go over two fences. Right? The wall extended 35 feet below ground. You're not going to penetrate this city. Remember the tower? Uh, Belshazzar's Babylon had 250 towers that were 450 feet tall each. I mean, most cities don't have 250 skyscrapers. And then there was a deep moat that went around the entire city. So you talk about security. You know, some people's arrogance comes from their money, their looks, their power, whatever. Other people's money comes from their security. Got my 401k. Got my security system on my house. Got everything I need. Now, if anybody could be secure, it would be Belshazzar, right? King Belshazzar made a great feast for a thousand of his lords and drank wine in front of the thousand. So let's have a drinking party, right? Belshazzar, when he tasted the wine, commanded that the vessels of gold and silver that Nebuchadnezzar, now it says his father, that could be translated his grandfather or his ancestor, had taken out of the temple in Jerusalem, be brought, that the king and his lords, his wives and his concubines, might drink from them. Let's not only get drunk, but let's mock the God of Israel by getting drunk from the holy vessels that were stolen from the temple in Jerusalem. They drank wine and praised the gods of gold and silver, bronze, iron, wood, and stone. Now get this. Immediately the fingers of a human hand appeared and wrote on the plaster of the wall of the king's palace opposite the lampstand. And the king saw the hand as it wrote. Then the king's color changed and his thoughts alarmed him. His Limbs gave way, and his knees knocked together. Have you ever been so scared that your knees knocked together? It happened to me once. I, asked, I was so nervous about asking a girl out <laughs> that my knees literally were knocking together. She said yes, and then she got sick and 
couldn't go, and it didn't happen. But I found my wife, my Elizabeth, so don't, don't go with the knee-knocking girl. All right, so, um, so he's getting drunk, and he's got a 1,000 people partying, and he is as secure as you can be. And, oh, you can't see this very well, but here, here's a, a, another artist's rendering of, of the drinking party. And up here on the wall, the hand starts to write. And the words are, Mene, Mene, Tekel, Perez. And I guess that's uh, Arabic. And it means, numbered, numbered, weighed, divided. Numbered, numbered, weighed, divided. Now, he doesn't know what that means. Is that talking about his bakery items? Uh, numbered, numbered, weigh them. What, what, is, what does it mean? So he says, get the wise men. And uh, they go, oh, Daniel, he, he's the, he gets revelations from God. Maybe he can interpret it. And whoever can interpret this for me will be made the third most powerful man in Babylon. So they bring Daniel out. And he interprets it. He says, this is the interpretation of the matter. Mene, uh, it means numbered. God has numbered the days of your kingdom and brought it to an end. Your days are up, Mr. Belshazzar. Tekel means weighed. You've been weighed in the balance and found wanting. Perez, your kingdom is divided. and So it means divided. Your kingdom is divided and given to the Medes and the Persians. Now, watch how quickly this happens. Then Belshazzar gave the command and Daniel was clothed with purple. A chain of gold was put around his neck and a proclamation was made about him that he should be the third ruler in, uh, in the kingdom. And then almost as an afterthought, it says this. That very night, Belshazzar, the Chaldean king, was killed. And Darius the Mede received the kingdom, being about 62 years old. We're not told how it happened. But we know from history how it happened. The Medes and the Persians came up with a plan to attack the city. Well, how could they possibly get in the city? Well, while the wall was impenetrable, the Euphrates River ran under the wall, right through the middle of the city. Upstream, they dug a, a trench with a, a wall of dirt separating the Euphrates from the trench. Then they knocked that wall out, and the Euphrates River filled the trench, and it lowered the river. And they marched into the city on the riverbed. And they destroyed Babylon. The proud, those who rely on themselves, the secure, I've got it made, I don't need God, really. Your security is an illusion. All right. One last lesson about Babylon. Babylon the Great. Now we go to the last book in the Bible. In the book of Revelation, Babylon refers to a harlot riding a seven-headed red beast. John has a vision. It says, And he, God, carried me away to the, in the Spirit into a wilderness, and I saw a woman sitting on a scarlet beast that was full of blasphemous names, and it had seven heads and ten horns. The woman was arrayed in purple and scarlet and adorned with gold and jewels and pearls, holding in her hand a golden cup, 
full of abominations and the impurities of her sexual immorality. And on her forehead was written a name, uh, a name of mystery, Babylon the Great, mother of prostitutes and of earth's abominations. Now, um, if you think the Tower of Babel story has a bunch of different interpretations, imagine what, what this is. Okay? In fact, your ESV study note says this, Many futurists take, uh, think that Babylon represents a great religious entity that will follow and support the Antichrist in the end time. So the Antichrist is this powerful political system. It's got seven heads because um, it, it's, it's not just one uh, world empire. At, at, some time, at some point it was Babylon, then it was Medo-Persia, then it was Greece, then it was Rome, and then in the end it will be some other world empire. So the, the beast is government, powerful, ruthless government. But who's the woman? Well, s- some people think it's a religious entity, and prostitution is not talking about literal prostitution, but religious prostitution. Okay? Historically, many Protestants identify Babylon with the Roman Catholic Church. I mean, the Reformers all were convinced that Roman uh, Catholicism was the, the prostitute Babylon on top of, uh, of the kings of the world. Okay? But that view is not widely held today. Others foresee an actual restoration of ancient Babylon, while still others think this represents some kind of revived Roman Empire or similar political entity. Now, Here's my strategy when it comes to interpreting prophecy, end-time prophecy. I think the safest thing to do is to take the most general interpretation that encompasses a lot of things, and as we get closer, if it narrows down to one particular thing, one particular religion or one particular uh, entity, we will see that as the clouds part. But until now, or until then, just keep it general. D.A. Carson, smartest man on the planet, um, says this. Babylon had stood in Old Testament times for all that was pagan, powerful, self-promoting, and vile. So Babylon here is it's not a city, it's not a religion, it's an attitude. It's a spirit of that which is pagan, powerful, self-promoting, and vile. The spirit of Babylon. Now, what's going to happen to Babylon in the end? Chapter 18. As she glorified herself and lived in luxury, so give her a like measure of torment and mourning, since in her heart she says, I sit as queen, I am no widow, and mourning... I shall never see. For this reason, her plagues will come in a single day. Notice that? Single day. In a single day, Babylon's languages were changed. In uh, a single day, Nebuchadnezzar was turned into a cow. In a single day, Belshazzar had his fall. And in a single day, end time Babylon will be destroyed. For this reason, her plagues will come in a single day. Death and mourning and famine, and she will be burned up with fire, for mighty is the Lord God who has judged her. Rejoice over her, O heaven, and you saints and apostles and prophets, 
for God has given judgment for you against her. Then a mighty angel took up a stone like a great millstone and threw it into the sea, saying, So will Babylon, the great city, be thrown down with violence and will be found no more. Babylon. It's the, uh, the attitude of, we're here to live in luxury. We're here to live in extravagance. And that will all be brought to an end like that. So who will you choose to believe and follow? The world that says, make a name for yourself. Live for sin. Live for self-promotion. Or will you believe God who says, humble yourself before the true creator? The spirit of Babylon is this. Let us make a name for ourselves. What's interesting is we turn the page. This is in Genesis 11. And we start to read about a man named Abraham. And out of the blue, God picks Abraham. And he says, And I will make of you a great nation. I will bless you and make your name great so that you will be a blessing. Here they say, We're going to make a name for ourselves. And God tells Abraham, I will make a name for you. Who are you more like? The people of Babylon making a great name for yourself? Or Abraham, whose whole goal was to make God's name great, and God turns around and makes his name great? Do you remember any famous people from Babylon? No. Do you know about Abraham? Yeah. Abraham pours himself into following God. It all boils down to this. Jesus said, blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. Abraham and his people, they inherited a little sliver of land in the Middle East. You who humble yourself before God, you will inherit the earth, the new heavens and the new earth. Why are you striving to make a name for yourself? Why is it all about you? Make it about God. Humble yourself. Now, uh, I have to conclude, though, by saying some are sitting here and you're saying, well, no, I'm not living to be famous or to make a lot of money. But you haven't humbled yourself before your Creator. You're self-sufficient, which is no different than the people of Babel or King Nebuchadnezzar or Belshazzar. You're a self-sufficient person, and you think you're good enough to get into heaven. The bad news is none of us is good enough to get into heaven. The proud think, I'm fine. I'll stand before God and he'll, he'll be glad to have me. And, and scripture says all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. And when you're humbled, you come to a point where you realize I am a sinner. I am condemned before a holy God. What hope do I have? God have mercy on me and then you understand the gospel that Jesus died. That's why Jesus came to die on the cross to pay for your sin and you embrace him 
as your Savior. But nobody does that without being humble. Blessed are the meek, the humble, the poor in spirit. They will inherit the earth. Let's pray. Lord, thank you that your word reveals the gospel, and you also warn us in many ways. You warn us about arrogance, about self-promotion, about pride. You show us how quickly you can bring us down. And Lord, you warn us that a judgment day is coming. Yet at the same time, you have solved that problem by dying on the cross and inviting all who believe in you to come to you and trust in you so we're forgiven and made right before you. Humble yourself before the Lord, bow your knee, and receive Christ as your Savior and Lord.